Welcome to Seedheads, the cross-pollinating podcast where our Canadian seed heroes tell their stories, share their how-to tips, and talk about the seeds they love. I'm your host, Steph Benoit, coming to you from Ottawa, Ontario, on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. For this week's episode, I had the pleasure of talking to Dr. Jennifer Mitchell-Fetch. Jennifer is a retired agriculture and agri-food Canada oat breeder who resides in Winnipeg, Manitoba on Treaty 1 territory. In our conversation, we touched on her experience breeding Canada's only two registered organic oat varieties, AAC Oravina and AAC Kongsor. We discussed why organic seed matters, how to get farmers more involved in plant breeding, and Jennifer's favorite non-dairy milk. Okay, spoiler alert, (laughs) it's oat. Jennifer was a pleasure to interview, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. All right. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's great to be with you, Steph. So for a long time, you were one of the only oat breeders in Canada and one of the only organic, I think the only organic oat breeder in Canada. So that's kind of a big deal. You even have a Wikipedia page. I don't know. If you're oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to, um, definitely wanted to have you on the podcast to talk a little bit about your work. And now you're recently retired and sort of looking back on your career. I was hoping to begin with, you could just sort of give us a little summary of the state of the organic oat world in Canada. Um, where is most of it being grown and who's doing that? Who's breeding it? A little bit of that sort of stuff. Okay. Well, the largest production area is the western provinces of Canada, with Saskatchewan being the leading acreage in production of oats. Manitoba is pretty close behind that, and then Alberta is a little bit lower. And um, there was a breeder working for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, Dr. Solomon Kabidi, who was located at Lacombe, Alberta, and he was responsible for the western um, half of Canada. There was a, a breeder located in Ottawa, a Dr. Vern Burroughs, who was responsible for the eastern part of Canada with Egg Canada. There was also an oat breeding program at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. And um, Brian Rossnagel was in that position when I started as the oat breeder in Winnipeg. And he was followed by Dr. Aaron Beatty. So uh, now, Dr. Wikayan is the breeder at Ottawa, and he's still breeding for Eastern Canada. And I was the breeder located in Winnipeg. Dr. Kabidi unfortunately passed away in the early 2000s, and I absorbed his program into mine. My program was developed to be a milling oat project. We didn't look at feed oats or forage oats or anything like that. And it was supported first by the Matching Investment Initiative. And so it was always an industry-based funding matched with government-provided funding. And after Dr. Kabidi died, uh, the program just um, expanded across all of Western Canada. Instead of just being in Manitoba and focused on milling quality oats with good disease resistance. So how did you specifically get into organic plant breeding? Is that something you dreamed of since you were a little girl? No, not exactly. It was all sort of happenstance because uh, as it happened, 
the um, spring wheat breeder, Dr. Stephen Fox, who was located at the Cereal Research Center in Winnipeg, Manitoba, working for Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, and a group of the scientists uh, from Agriculture Canada would go down the street to have coffee, and they would get together with some of the University of Manitoba plant science professors and biology professors. And Dr. Martin Enns, who was very much into uh, rotational, long-term rotations and sustainable agriculture. And Stephen got chatting at coffee and they talked about, well, maybe we should do more organic Mm -hmm. research and maybe we should start breeding specifically for organic production. And Stephen said, that's a great idea. And he came back from coffee and came in to talk to me and said, this is what we're thinking about doing. And I said, well, we really should include oats in that because, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be a good crop as well. And so Martin was really nice and allowed us to plant some of our crosses, our populations on his organic um, land at Glenlee and at Carmen, Manitoba. And then it just morphed from there. We decided that Uh, Well, a lot of research was being done showing that the organically developed or bred selected uh, lines were performing better under organic management than lines that were developed under conventional management, which makes sense. So we thought, well, maybe we should try developing an oat cultivar. And at the time, my industry funding partners were quite interested in that as well. And Green Millers Incorporated specifically was really interested because they wanted to start milling organically produced oats and have a line, a product line that was organic and having the organically developed cultivar in that processing system made a really good story. Mm -hmm. So they were very supportive of that. So it was happenstance but very fortunate that I was able to get into the oat breeding and when um, the cereal research center was closed in Winnipeg Dr. Stephen Fox left the wheat breeding program to go into a private canola breeding company Mm -hmm. so his part of the organic cultivar development got dropped Mm -hmm. unfortunately we were able to put uh, AAC Oravina which was just testing the waters to find out if it was something we could do or not. That one um, was the trial balloon, so to speak. And then we had AAC Kongsor developed as well. So I guess it was successful. Still to this day, those are the only two organic registered varieties, correct? Correct. In Canada, they're the only ones. Wow. It's kind of funny to think that all of this started just over a cup of coffee as well. (laughs) And that's how a lot of collaboration can happen. It's just getting together with someone and starting to chat about, well, we could maybe do this or this might be a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And so for someone of like my age, organics had already really taken off by the time that I was my like a real consumer for the first time. But a lot of this was happening in like the 80s and 90s, I'm guessing, when you were doing this. It wasn't as mainstream as it is now, correct? Correct. It was just brand new. And the fact that uh, a milling company would actually have a, an organic production line mm-hmm. or shut down their plant just to mill organic oats was surprising to me, even that they would see a market for that. Right. But 
So why do you think organic plant breeding matters then? Developing a cultivar that can produce under minimal uh, inputs and organic production systems in general is critical because Mm -hmm. there's different traits that a cultivar needs to perform well under those conditions versus under a conventional production system where there's fungicides, fertilizers, all sorts of uh, synthetic products available to help that cultivar do its best. Yeah, it kind of makes sense if it's, you know, you're growing it in totally different conditions, then it would be best to have something that is sort of equipped from from when it first goes into the soil to be ready for those conditions. Correct. Mm -hmm. With that in mind, then, how are the plant breeding priorities different for organic growers than conventional? Yeah, I think mainly that the the inputs are different. Mm -hmm. Uh, The growing uh, conditions can be different. Uh, the organic cultivars or uh, cultivars performing in an organically managed environment may have to compete against weeds and other things that a conventional production system wouldn't need. Quite often you want something that has a uh, larger seed size so that it can emerge quickly, get out of the ground in a hurry and cover the soil and outcompete the weeds around it. Uh, You might want something that's taller than a conventional production system because it can shadow again over the weeds and outcompete those weeds and um, have a lot of tissue available to collect all of the nutrients that it possibly can. The root systems could be a lot more extensive in an organically developed cultivar. There's a lot of things that uh, adapt a cultivar well to that kind of lower input production system. Mm-hmm. It's got to be a little hardier because it's got to fight for itself a bit more. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the help of the, you know, neighbors and the synthetic fertilizers or inputs that it would normally get in a conventional program. Mm-hmm. Now you were alluding to the fact that your, um, your breeding program was mostly for Western Canada. There's someone else in Ottawa who's um, going towards the East. Do you think regional seed matters and um, do local seed companies and local varieties matter? I think it does uh, because some of the cultivars, for example, that Dr. Wikayan has developed for Eastern Canada, the Atlantic provinces and Quebec do very well in those particular environments. In fact, some of his lines do better in Quebec and not in Atlantic Canada versus, you know, the other way around. So I think it's important to have testing for sure mm-hmm. in each section of the country. And um, he's done a lot of studies on macro environments. And he suggests that Western Canada is one big macro environment. Hmm. I'm not sure I agree completely, but yeah, it's, <laughs> uh, it's got a different environment than Quebec or Atlantic Canada. So I think to have a cultivar that performs well, like across Western Canada, you've got to test in a lot of environments across Western Canada to show that. But if you want to specifically have a cultivar that performs well in a certain region of the country, like um, for an organic producer, they want something that does very well in their specific environment. So you need to test over, I'd say quite a few years Mm -hmm. to make sure that your line is going to perform the best 
right. in that environment in all situations. Right. So regional or localized production, I think, can be quite important in some cases. Could you tell us a little bit more about the varieties that you bred and registered? Well, uh, AAC Oravina, as we mentioned, was the first one. And it was uh, fairly tall, tall compared to the Czechs. It didn't yield um, as well as AC Morgan. Mm -hmm. which is a conventionally developed cultivar from Dr. Solomon Kabidi's program. And it is our high yielding check. And we're having a lot of trouble outperforming AAC, AAC Morgan because it just, it's done so well over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. But uh, Oravina was fairly close in yield to Morgan. So that was good. It had a very high test weight and a large kernel size. So I assumed that it would get out of the ground faster and compete with the weeds better. It had very high beta-glucan, which is the soluble fiber that makes oatmeal so healthy for you, for your heart and diabetes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that was a good trait. And it was relatively good disease resistance. So, um, or it had relatively good disease resistance. So that was a good thing because for an organic farmer, you need genetic traits to combat diseases. You don't have the options of fungicide and things like that, or as many options as a conventional farmer would. So at the time Oravina was released, it had quite good crown rust resistance, which is one of the more important problems in Western Canada. And it was also relatively resistant to stem rust, oh, stem rust which is another problem. Kongsor is a little bit later maturity than Oravina, but it yields better than Oravina. And it, in both conventional and organic production system, yields similar to Morgan. So it's a high yielder. Wow, yeah. So it's been good. It has a little bit higher oil than Oravina or some of the other um, Czech cultivars that we use, but that might be a good thing for uh, someone who's feeding animals with the oats or maybe for oat cosmetics who yeah. knows you know there's uh, or and both oravina and kongsor are high in protein which might be very good for the oat beverage production areas so there's options available mm -hmm. well, i was going to ask you this is one of my hard-hitting questions but when <laughs> it comes to alternative milks are you an oat gal I have to be. You I just have, have to be. be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Won't catch her putting soy in her coffee. Mm, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to admit, oat beer is pretty good, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're just, yeah, you, you got to believe in your products. You got to stand mm. behind it. <laughs> so once you had these varieties registered, did you face any um, challenges commercializing them and bringing them up to a wider scale? Um. I didn't because Green Millers was so directly involved that they um, got the license to uh, sell from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. Mm -hmm. And they had their seed production through the Fedoric Seeds in Camsac, Saskatchewan. And uh, they took care of all of that part of the commercialization process. So that was uh, not on my uh, table for doing that. But they did have some problems producing organically managed seed of AAC or Avena. 
They had some really tough years where their yields weren't as good as they'd hoped. And that made it difficult to produce enough seed to sell commercially to the organic producers who really wanted to try Oravina. And I think with AAC Kongsor, they've decided they're going to uh, produce it conventionally just so they can make sure they get good enough yields to then uh, transfer to the producers who want to try and grow Kongsor. Right. And those producers would be producing it uh, organically or conventionally then? I'm hoping most of them would be producing it organically, but AAC Kongsor can do okay under conventional management as well. So I'm not sure how uh, Green Millers is going to um, govern that, if they'll say, no, we'll only sell to an organic producer or not. Right. Interesting. Yeah, it seems like once you once it's out of your hands, it's sort of uh, out there. It's got a life of its own and it, mm-hmm. you know, it goes where you, it, ho- you hope it does well, but <laughs> it's not really under your control. Right. You can watch the, t- the statistics and see how many acres it's being grown on, but that's mm-hmm. about all. <laughs> yeah. And is like, are organic oats being taken up fairly widely? Is that a, something, a market that's expanding still? That's a good question. And I actually tried to look up some of the statistics on how much organic production there has been in the past few years. But the the Canadian Grain Commission is now covering uh, variety market share mm-hmm. for you know all the cereals and all the crops, but their last document was 2019, so 2020. So there isn't a lot of information available on production statistics specifically of organic. Mm-hmm. In your opinion, how can organic plant breeding be better supported? Well, that's a good question because um, through the organic science cluster and the industry input and the uh, government of Canada input and the organic federation input, my program was very well supported and Mm -hmm. it was doing very well. But I think the um, interest is maybe waning a bit Mm -hmm. on actually doing the organic cultivar development because when Stephen Fox left Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, they, there was no push to continue with the wheat organic breeding program. And I'm wondering if the organic oat breeding will go the same way hmm. and because um, producers can grow conventionally developed cultivars that may yield better, may do better on their, in their specific uh, production systems and get higher yields, which is more attractive than worrying about having an actual organically developed cultivar. Right. Makes sense. So it, it may, it may uh, gain interest with the increase in, um, you know, interest in organic products or the farmers may find uh, more suitable alternatives for their own production systems. Mm. Yeah. And I guess you're in a kind of a, an interesting and unique situation with cereals in particular compared to people who are breeding um, vegetables and just that there's a lot of industry, industry interest to begin with. Uh, mm-hmm. 
and seeing those things grown and scaled up and whatnot. A lot of people who are just doing market uh, market gardening are not seeing the same sort of push by industry to have these things, yeah. these products available. Right. So you've worked a lot with the participatory plant breeding program. Could you mm-hmm. talk about that briefly, sort of describe it and where you see it going in the future? Yeah, that was a, a really cool idea from Martin's group. What happened was Stephen and I developed populations, grew them on Martin's organic land, got enough seed that they could send little uh, aliquots of seed out to several different producers that were interested in trying it. And then they made selections on their land, in their environments, under their management conditions. They would uh, harvest the lines that they thought did the best, send them back to the University of Manitoba. And uh, the people there, through uh, Anne Kirk, Iris Vaisman, and Michelle Karkner, all worked on that. And they would process the seed and then send it back to the uh, initial breeder. And then they would grow it again. So they did that for about three or four seasons. And then um, for the organically developed oat cultivars, I put them into my trialing program Mm -hmm. under organically managed uh, systems. And uh, just to see how they did compared to my lines. And I was quite pleasantly surprised that several of the participatory plant breeding selections did better than my lines oh wow so we moved them in from the what we call our preliminary yield trial into our b organic trial or borg which the crew loved um so they went into the borg and they still performed well enough to go into the registration trial so that they could become if the participatory breeders want to um Dr. Kerber Nielsen, who's my replacement, will move the line forward and get it registered and help them, you know, with that part of the commercialization system. And there is one line that's still in the co-op test that was a participatory plant breeders line. So that's kind of exciting because that shows that that specific line performed well enough across all sites in Western Canada that it could uh, compete with the Czech cultivars. Wow, that's yeah. very cool. The participatory plant breeding uh, experience was very interesting for me because the individual producers had very different ideas about what they wanted to see and what they thought was a, a good performer mm-hmm. in their particular environments. And for the organic uh economy or production systems, I think it's not a bad idea. Mm-hmm. Participatory breeding for an individual area or region of the country is a good idea. And I hope I hope it can, can continue, but I guess time will tell. Yeah, it's wonderful to have different voices in there and to, to hear from different people's experiences. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I always learned a lot when I talked to producers, always. So I'm wondering, just in general, how do you think farmers could be more connected to public plant breeding? If someone has like an idea of what would be useful for a new variety of oats, let's say, how could they connect to a plant breeding program? I think the best option is to um, actually get to know a public plant breeder, if possible, to be able to talk to them, go to their field days, go and tour their uh, plots. Most 
breeding programs, if you call them up and say, I'd like to come and visit your program, are more than willing to spend um, an afternoon or longer just boring you to tears with all the information that they can possibly provide, you know? So I think it's something that, um, and that's maybe something that's a bit lacking. It's better in the organic industry. There's a lot more extension to the producers. Um, The conventional systems uh, used to be really good about field days and tours and that kind of thing they were going on all the time all summer and Mm -hmm. it's not as much as it used to be. And that's maybe a a downfall of Mm -hmm. the public breeding programs that we're not doing as much extension, getting to know the producers because the producers have really good ideas on what could improve the crop. Right. The breeders, the participatory breeders though have to realize that it does take a while to make the cross and build up the population enough so that you can actually make selections Mm -hmm. and throw away the bad ones. (laughs) Right. And, you know, and then you've got to, to get a line registered, you've got to produce quite a bit of data to support that registration, which takes at least three years. Mm -hmm. So it's not something that if a producer told me today, well, we need higher compound X in this oat line. I couldn't have a line out there tomorrow. For right, of course. It's going to be a while. Yeah. And it takes some time. Yeah. You have to have a little bit of the patience of nature to go totally. through the cycles and seasons. Absolutely. How long does it take on average um, to go from sort of the inception of this idea to see it being a registered variety? What is sort of the average time span? It's at least 10 years because Oravina, AAC Oravina, the initial cross was made in 2004. And it got supported for registration in 2014. Wow. And that was just to get it registered. Then you have to blow it up for uh, certified seed production, which is another three to four years after that. Okay. So it was only really entering the scene for commercial production uh, just a few years ago then. Correct. Oh, wow. Interesting. So it's still early days, even though the whole idea started in 2004. Yeah. Well, I guess that kind of um, that forward look that you have to have is definitely probably, um, yeah, a personal quality that made this your your work here work. Um, (laughs) It's true. You have to be very, very patient. Is there anything that a lifetime of breeding oats has taught you? Don't get attached to your babies, because (laughs) as much as work that you put into making that a original cross like thinking about what you want in that population and trying to get it the genes all together in that population you end up throwing away 75 to 90 percent of the babies get thrown out so you can't you can't get uh, really tied to them (laughs) yeah because you can get aligned to the co-op and have it doing fairly well and uh, there's no marketing group that wants to market it they don't see a potential for it so you could have a line that you've lived with for 10 to 12 13 years and nobody wants it oh that would (laughs) be devastating it it is hard like because 13 years prior to that you thought this was going to be a great line you thought it was going to be the the barn burner and it isn't (laughs) yeah 
But then what so motivates you, you to, you know, knowing that is it the possibility of having one that really takes off and really making an impact that keeps you going? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's like um, AC Morgan, Solomon Committee, when he made that cross back in the late nineties, he was just developing a feed weed. He was, or a feed oat. He wasn't thinking of milling quality oat or a high yielding line, but it's been like a line that we can barely uh, beat for yield in yeah. the last 20 years. So it's really done amazing things that he never expected. Mm -hmm. He never expected it to be that good a line. So yeah. it's then, fortuitous maybe or serendipity. Well, and then I think also like that, that element of surprise and sometimes that element of uncertainty can be really tantalizing. You just don't mm -hmm. know. It's just so interesting to think that humans have been sort of co-evolving with a lot of these plants for mm -hmm. thousands and thousands of years. You know, in, in a lot of ways, this is a very ancestral process to mm -hmm. tend to plant plants and to try to guide them in the direction that you want with a, a gentle but loving hand, not getting too <laughs> attached to your babies, throwing 75% yeah. of them out. <laughs> exactly. No. Yeah, it's, it's something that people have been doing for a long, long time. And also in particular, women have been doing and have been involved in for a long time. But nowadays, when you look at plant breeding, it's largely a male dominated field. So I was wondering if you ever felt, um, I don't know, so any sort of the effects of being uh, very much a minority gender wise in, in your field and amongst your colleagues? Um, not so much, but when, when I first started doing, uh, going into my master's program in agriculture and crop science at the University of Saskatchewan way back in the middle of mid-70s, <laughs> aging myself, but I was the only female grad student at the time. Mm -hmm. I went into that thinking, oh, I'm going to have to fight battles. But I really didn't. The, most of the people around me were very supportive very helpful, very um, willing to teach me things. If I asked questions, they answered me. They, they didn't uh, blow me off sort of thing. So I was pleasantly surprised that, that the good support that I got throughout my career. And um, I became a triticale breeder at the University of Manitoba after my master's. And I was the one that felt people aren't taking me seriously. And it wasn't just because I was a female. It was because of my lack of training and education and experience. Mm -hmm. And I made the decision to pursue my PhD then. And uh, I felt a lot more um, prepared and able to enter the plant breeding field at that time. And Dr. Anna Storsgaard, who was a forage breeder at the University of Manitoba at the time, I didn't interact with her a lot, but the fact that she was there and a strong woman and uh, a good leader and uh, an excellent breeder gave me the um, hero that I could look at and say, well, yeah. I could be like that. So I'm going to go get my PhD and, you know, maybe I can be somewhat successful like she is yeah so that helped a lot yeah but the the men around me were always uh helpful and supportive and uh really uh tried to be helpful so yeah. that was good i that's, appreciated that 
Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's the story that you want to hear. You want to mm-hmm. hear that someone has been supported despite being a, a minority in whatever way within their field. Yeah. That's awesome. And yeah, I think it would, it definitely has an impact to um, have someone who looks like you sort of mm-hmm. on, the trail, on the trail ahead of you, uh, blazing that trail and, and giving an example. And I'm sure it'll have a big impact on the next generation of plant breeders to have seen uh, now multiple women mm-hmm. plant breeders uh, being, being very successful, leaving a big legacy, <laughs> becoming oat doctors. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any words of wisdom uh, for women who want to get into the field or anyone, I suppose? Yeah, for any new uh, plant reader. Um, and that's a bit of um, a dicey in a way, not well or questionable because I might have been one of the last classically trained plant breeders that I know of because everyone um, now coming out has so much experience in the biotechnology, the information, the data analysis, mm-hmm. the uh, artificial intelligence, the um, digital world that I didn't have when I started. And so some of the classical training that I got out in the field might be lacking so I think it's really good if anyone who's potentially interested in plant breeding if you could as a a high school student or a university student during the summers if you can get a job with a plant breeding program see what it's like to really be out in the field and seeing the plants in their environment and how they grow in that environment is really good. And I think the main thing you should do too is find people you can collaborate with because you can't be an expert in every area. You have to understand or know about all those areas, but you can't be an expert in all those areas. So you need pathologists, you need cytogeneticists, you need quality personnel, you need production, agronomy, um, all of that kind of expertise so if you can collaborate with people who are experts in those areas you can build a a good breeding team right so and I think that's really important for a a breeder yeah it seems like it it, you know it sort of takes a village to raise a yes yes definitely definitely The last question that I have, this is, it's important to me. Um, do oatmeal raisin cookies taste better when you bread the oats? Um, yes, especially if they have chocolate chips in them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. I, after this conversation, I'm ever the more confident that you fall into the category of seed hero. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Pleasure to talk to you, Jennifer. Okay. Thanks so much. Seedheads is produced by the Bowdo Family Initiative on Canadian Seed Security, a program of seed change, whose main office is located on the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabeg people. To find episode transcripts and learn more about seed work in Canada, please visit seedsecurity.ca.